Hello. Post-Brexit, the UK is going to be something of a review process, considering how it wishes to adapt its laws in light of the likes of developing technologies, changing global landscapes, and obviously given its new position outside the EU. My name is Emma Keeling. I'm a senior professional support lawyer in ANO London's commercial team, covering, amongst other things, data protection law. I'm joined today by Steve Wood to consider the UK data protection reform proposals published recently. Steve Wood is ANO's special advisor on data protection and former deputy commissioner at the UK ICO. During his 15-year tenure at the ICO, Steve was, amongst other things, instrumental in shaping the UK's position on the GDPR, both during its negotiation and through its implementation. He also has extensive experience of international institutions, such as the EU EDPB, and through chairing an OECD working party. Steve is therefore well-placed to offer insights on the upcoming changes to the UK data protection regime. Welcome, Steve. Hello, very pleased to be here. Steve, you've recently written a very helpful blog on ANO's Digital Hub about the UK Data Protection and Digital Information Bill, introduced to Parliament on the 18th of July 2022. This is the legislation intended to effect reform of the UK data protection regime and flows from the Data A New Direction UK Government Consultation back in September 2021. Your article set out some of the key changes and areas of amendment, whether relating to reducing barriers to innovation or reducing regulatory burden for business, boosting trade and reducing barriers to data flows. Delivery of better public services were addressed there too, um, and indeed reforms of the ICO itself. Following on from that, I just wanted to raise some questions today at a slightly higher level, looking at some of the broader implications and impacts that changes um, put forward might bring. So firstly, prior to publication, there was speculation that the UK government could make radical changes to the UK GDPR and UK Data Protection Act 2018. In your blog, however, you describe the actual text as more of an evolution than a revolution. Were there any particular areas where you expected to see more change or where you were surprised at where the government landed on a particular point? Thanks so much. Uh, I think reflecting on the early days of Brexit, certainly after the referendum in 2016, there was a lot more uncertainty about how radical the UK might be in its approach to data protection and how radical any divergence might be. But I think once we saw a clear policy position from the UK government that it would seek adequacy status um, from the EU, and that was finally gained in the decision um, from the European Commission in 2021, I think we always then expected that there would need to be a balance really between um, maintaining that adequacy status from the EU against uh, the, the benefits um, of diverging and developing our own approach to data protection regulation in the UK, which has probably led us to this position of it being evolutionary, as, as you outlined. And I think businesses have also been very clear about the economic benefits of data flows to and from the EU, and that has clearly been um, important evidence for the, the government to, to take account of. I think just reflecting on the bill in a little bit more detail, I think it's... Um, 
it's significant that the bill as well has been um, introduced um, before a new prime minister is in place. So obviously there had been some speculation as to whether there would need to be a period um, to, to wait for that. So whilst I think there could be some changes to the bill on its way through Parliament, I think any radical change from a new prime minister um, after September, now the bill has been introduced, also seems unlikely. So I think the bill we have um, is the one we will start to see um, go through that parliamentary process. And I also think, you know, some of the more radical options which the government floated in its um, consultation data and new direction, such as um, potentially removing completely Article 22 and automated decision making, didn't make the final bill, that most radical option. But there are some cha important changes to Article 22 in the bill, removing the general prohibition on automated decision making and creating um, specific conditions instead as the, the set of safeguards. I think overall, I think we would um, call this package, you know, pro-innovation. That's where most of the changes are pointed to. But there are also some important uh, measures to introduce protection for the public as well, such as the increase um, in fining power for the ICO to be able to fine in relation to nuisance calls to bring the, the, the powers under the privacy and electronic communications regulations uh, in line with the, the GDPR um, fining, uh, fining limit as well, which is obviously um, up to 4% to, to, to of global turnover at the, at the highest instance. Um, the, the other area where I think there was some surprise, the, 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 the other two areas to highlight were um, around privacy management programs. So these were trailed by the government in their consultation documents as being an alternative UK approach to accountability, but ultimately they haven't appeared in the bill. So that was one surprise that they, they haven't been taken forward. They are quite a recognised concept in terms of good practice of data protection, um, but they, they didn't make the bill in the end as an alternative to removing some of the um, the, uh, the, the accountability, accountability provisions that are already in the, the GDPR, so this is an alternative to um, some of the some of the mechanisms which have been removed, like um, data protection impact assessments. However, obviously, privacy management programs may instead feature in ICO guidance in the future. And lastly, the, 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 the one point to, to make as well is that the Article 27 provision in the GDPR, um, which um, requires um, a controller to appoint a representative if they're not established in the UK, if they're caught by the territorial scope provisions, um, the, the decision to remove the Article 27 representative requirement um, was a surprise to some because that wasn't um, trailed in the in the consultation response. So hopefully that gives um, a flavour of, of the, the way that the bill has evolved and some of the context and, and some of the things which perhaps we're, we're, we're more surprised about that have emerged. Uh, absolutely, that's really helpful. Um, and as you say, there's some things which were more significant changes um, than might have been known and others which were pared back. So interesting to see those those balances there. Uh, legal changes, I think even those intended to reduce the long-term regulatory burden will cause businesses to, to reconsider their processes and procedures generally. Many organisations obviously have been through lengthy and complex GDPR programmes just in the last few years. And multinationals in particular are increasingly having to navigate a real breadth of regulatory requirements um, to ensure compliance in, in data protection and data more generally. 
how do you see those companies tackling the UK reforms in, in practice? Are we likely to see a parallel running of different approaches or is there scope for those that might be compliant with other regimes like the EU GDPR um, being able to achieve UK compliance through, through some of those same practices in reality? Thanks. Yeah, I think we'd recognise that this is one of the key questions that is that's coming up from, from, from businesses, particularly those who are operating um, extensively in a multinational context. And clearly, divergence um, when um, these multinational businesses have very comprehensive global programmes that have been based on um, EU GDPR um, are obviously sort of important questions that businesses um, want, want to address. And DCMS have, have published an impact assessment um, alongside the bill, um, which indicates that these costs, you know, should not be significant alongside the benefits. They have also recognised that particularly um, these reforms um, around accountability, so for example, switching to a new form of risk assessment instead of doing a data protection impact assessment may perhaps most benefit companies who have who have the the, the main or their sole focus in the uk compared to a multinational business but i think the the, the focus that the dcms have have created on this question when they've been speaking publicly on, on platforms about the the consultation and the bill recently has been that they, they recognise this question really, the, the, the investment that multinational companies have already made in their EU GDPR accountability compliance, that it still should be possible to be able to deploy this as evidence in terms of demonstrating how it can be mapped across to meet the new, the new UK requirements. So it shouldn't require a, a starting from scratch approach for um, these new accountability provisions in the in in the in the UK bill, I think it will be an important area for guidance from the ICO. So the the, the regulators' guidance, I think, can also help explain how organisations can meet the new requirements for accountability in the bill, which are actually designed to be more flexible and actually less onerous. To understand how that mapping can actually work in practice. And also there are new requirements in the bill also for the ICO to engage and consult with business when developing guidance. So there should be good opportunities for businesses, particularly perhaps, particularly perhaps through trade bodies, um, to provide input into how this can um, develop in future. Brilliant. And, and that's really reassuring. So people don't have to reinvent the wheel or try and um, create new new regimes internally to uh, solve some of these problems they've already feel like they may have tackled. And as you say, keeping an eye on that guidance, definitely um, worthwhile. One area that many organisations are finding particularly challenging currently, whether I think under the EU GDPR or UK GDPR, is that of international data transfers. And the Data Protection and Digital Information Bill does set out an updated approach to international transfers from the UK. Is it perhaps one scenario where even multinationals look to make the most of a maybe more pragmatic approach in that context? Yes, uh, I agree. I think this is one of the sort of the most positive and, and pragmatic aspects of um, UK data protection policy that's, that's set out in the bill. Um, without going into too much detail, but just to flag that, that the bill's provisions in Schedule 5 do really seek to address some of the disproportionate aspects um, that businesses have cited on international transfer requirements, particularly following the, the Schrems 2 ruling from the Court of Justice of the European Union that 
the assessments that controllers are now having to make of third countries when using tools such as standard contractual clauses have proved, you know, lengthy and difficult in practice and have actually, you know, perhaps slowed down the process that organisations have related to international transfers and has added a lot more friction. And the changes that the UK has set out in the new bill make clear that the controller can act reasonably and proportionately. So those new words have been added really as, as a test in terms of what the controller needs to do to discharge its responsibilities when using um, safeguards like standard contractual clauses to transfer um, personal data to third, third countries. So those words reasonably and proportionately should give more um, reassurance really about what's expected of controllers. And it this does start to create um, you know, a more nuanced approach compared to what um, is, is currently the situation in the EU. And the bill also clarifies you know, that all the, all the circumstances, the likely circumstances of the transfer or the type of transfer, including the nature and the volume of personal data transferred can be considered when making that, um, that assessment as well. So I think there are, there are some really important um, takeaways there that um, businesses who are transferring personal data to the UK can start to think ahead to some changes to their practices if this bill um, becomes law. I think it will become welcome. I think it will allow, I think, international transfers to perhaps take a more proportionate position against other areas of data protection compliance. There are lots of other important areas of data protection compliance where businesses need to invest in managing risk. International transfers isn't the only one. And I think this will allow international transfers to take that, to take a balanced position um, in amongst all the, the different compliance issues. And hopefully as well, the UK approach can become an international example of, of how to, you know, maintain high standards of protection, but also to, you know, reduce friction and to allow for growth in digital, digital, digital uh, data flows to, to support innovation as well. Excellent. That, and that's got to be a good thing for business, as you say. We've talked about the differences that are starting to appear perhaps between the EU and UK regimes. Um, and one of the key concerns of business is to avoid, I guess, such levels of deviation that there's a threat to the UK status as a jurisdiction offering those adequate levels of protection, at least in the European Commission's view. This is clearly important to enable smooth and easy transfer of personal data from the, the EU to the UK, um, fundamental for many businesses. And on the basis of the text as it stands, and as you've described some of those, those changes, do you see the loss of adequacy status as a realistic risk? I don't see it as a realistic um, risk, you know, imminently within, you know, the next few years in terms of the focus of the of the of the European Commission. But of course, we have to factor in, you know, future court challenges by, you know, third parties and NGOs in in the future. I don't think anybody would say the the risk is zero, but. DCMS have been very clear that they believe the bill is compatible with the UK retaining its adequacy status. Um, DCMS uh, and government have been very clear as well and on record about how they've engaged with the European Commission during the policy development related to this bill, um, which again, I think provides some reassurance that they've, they've had that engagement with the European Commission, presumably sought some form of, um, of reaction as well. 
And it's also rem worth remembering that the, the test used for adequacy in the EU is one of essential equivalence. That doesn't mean a copy of the GDPR is required. And it's worth noticing the differences that other countries have who also have um, adequacy status. So, you know, countries such as New Zealand and Japan um, also have some differences in their data protection and privacy laws um, compared to the EU GDPR as well. So I think there is, um, you know, good grounds for optimism that the, you know, the, the Commission um, will, can, can look at um, the UK's proposals fairly and objectively, and the UK has a good, has a good continues to make um, a strong case. Um, I think the areas the Commission are most likely to look at may be around the independence of the ICO. So that's always been an important factor for the Commission in terms of the independence of the Data Protection Authority and, and the protections um, in the legislation for onward transfers of EU citizens' data as well. So I think those are the areas that we know the Commission um, will be particularly interested in. And whilst the bill does obviously, you know, take this evolutionary approach and has um, identified some changes, I think ultimately as well, the changes are often nuanced. They're not removing core principles. They're often, you know, changing the context in which they will will, will operate rather than, you know, um, removing um, a central plank of the, of, of the legislation completely as well. I think the UK will also seek to argue that the reforms remain in line with the Council of Europe Convention 108 Treaty as well. I should stress as well that the Council of Europe is an entirely separate body to the, the European Union, and the UK is still a signatory to um, Convention 108. And Convention 108 is also referenced um, in the EU um, General Data Protection Regulation as a, as a relevant reference point for adequacy as well. So I think there are a number of um, positive points in there in terms of um, being optimistic about um, the UK retaining adequacy, though of course I think with possible court challenges to come in future, and we know the history of that with the the Schrems cases, it's clearly uh, important to recognise that there is there is some risk. Thank you. That's that's really interesting. And you referred to the ICO's independence there. Um, generally speaking, the ICO is known for having something of a pragmatic approach to data protection, I guess. Um, and indeed, that looks set to continue under John Edwards and in light of the, the ICO's ICO 25 strategic plan that, that came out also in July 2022. However, the, the bill, as we know, does make various significant changes to the ICO's governance and structure. And as you flagged, there are some who might be concerned about the future of its independence in that new guise. How do you see these changes impacting business in practice? Well, I think the bill seeks to recognise that the ICO is now you know, a major regulator with economic impact in the UK, and it's sought to modernise its governance in the bill. So it's it's moving away from the model um, of the commissioner as a corporation sold to the model of an information commission with a with a statutory board, which is more in line with other economic regulators that businesses will be used to working with, such as the you know the Financial Conduct Authority, Ofcom, um, etc. So I think this is a modernisation that, that that many businesses will welcome in terms of putting the ICO onto um, a similar footing to other economic um, regulators. I think the environment as well that the bill creates will probably create um, greater 
really greater certainty in terms of the, the the wider policy environment that's set for data protection. So the government will be able to um, set um, a, a policy context in terms of um, what the ICO must have regard to and providing a statement to the ICO, but the ICO only has to have regard to that. It doesn't actually dictate in a lot of detail as to what the ICO's um, priority should be, but it should actually really um, actually create a, a more joined up environment between government policy and what the regulator does, but equally respecting the ICO's need to, to set its own priorities and approach to areas like enforcement will still be, um, you know, ring fenced. That's still vital to the independence of the regulator. And as you mentioned earlier, I think we'll continue to see the evolution of the ICO's, um, you know, pragmatic and risk-based and outcomes-based um, approach to enforcement. I think businesses will continue um, to see that um, develop along, along similar lines. The bill also, I think, pushes the ICO to go further in being consultative. I think the ICO has a good track record on this already, but the changes in the bill, I think, will push the ICO to go um, a bit further in terms of creating panels for consultation for key documents like codes of practice. And I think they should develop a, uh, you know, a more um, proactive re regulatory environment and more interactions um, with key stakeholders to be able to... Um, develop the, the evidence and insight that can be provided to the regulator to make sure the regulator understands the context in, in which it's regulating. So I think these changes um, should be positive for business. I should also add as well that I think, you know, the ICO will also, of course, need to consult with other stakeholders, such as civil to civil society and, you know, groups representing the public as well. So it should actually, you know, create, a, you know, a balanced and holistic approach in terms of how the ICO engages with, with all stakeholders. Thank you. So finally, of all the developments put forward, I guess you mentioned at the, right at the, at the outset the sort of legislative process that the bill is now going to go through. Do you think there's one aspect of the bill where you can see there being more contentious discussions um, as, it, as it works its way through that process? Well, just to pinpoint one area, um, it's obviously difficult to completely say at the moment because we're still at a very early stage, but I think the, the one aspect which I think will be subject to a lot of debate is the change I mentioned earlier about the reforms to Article 22 and um, automated decision-making because I think there is a lot of focus and a debate about you know, the role of using algorithms and artificial intelligence in business settings, in the public sector, and I think debating you know, the efficiencies and the breakthroughs that artificial intelligence can deliver, you know, and also you know, particularly important areas like health, that people can see the major benefits, but they can also see significant risks potentially in terms of entrenching certain discriminations or risks or harms that are um, potentially inherent in, in, how, um, in, in how data is used in um, artificial intelligence systems. So I think the focus will be on um, whether it's um, uh, a balanced reform to um, remove the general prohibition in Article 22 related to automated decision making and whether the safeguards that are now in place in the bill um, strike the right balance. So I think that's one area I think we can we can watch for further debate. Excellent. It will certainly be interesting to to follow that progress. And 
just to say, Steve, thank you very much for these invaluable insights. Um, we will continue to, to track the progress of the bill. Um, you can, as listeners, always learn more about data and digital related developments on our Digital Hub blog on ANO's website. And should this discussion have raised any queries or if you have any questions on the topic more generally, please do feel free to reach out to us contact details for Steve, myself, and two of our data protection specialist partners in London, Jane, Finlayson Brown, and Nigel Parker can be found accompanying the podcast should you wish to reach out. So thank you very much again, Steve. Extremely interesting. And uh, watch this space for more developments. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.